For the federal government's trial attorneys, your flexibility to telework depends an awful lot on what part of the country you're in. A new survey by the National Association of Assisted U.S. Attorneys found a wide variety of telework policies across the 94 U.S. Attorney's offices, but fewer than half have policies that the organization categorizes as flexible. Adam Hanna is an AUSA in the Southern District of Illinois and the Vice President of the National Association of Assisted U.S. Attorneys. He talked with me about the survey and why many AUSAs want a bit more flexibility. NASA's earlier survey was really focused on what AUSAs wanted telework to look like when the pandemic uh, started to wind down. And so we heard from members and AUSAs across the country who were really interested in seeing telework continue um, after the emergency ended. Yet we knew that some office leadership was resistant to this idea and that there were folks in U.S. attorneys' offices across the country who were not particularly fond of telework. So even before the DOJ return to work process began, we geared up our advocacy efforts um, at the Department of Justice on the telework issue. We met with the Deputy Attorney General. We, we talked with folks at the Executive Office for U.S. Attorney and, and really pressed uh, the concept that the working world has changed as a result of the pandemic and that our, our members really expect to have some flexibility in their work going forward. So what we saw in the most recent survey is that about 52% of offices accepted our recommendation and offered telework to employees uh, for at least two days a week or four days per pay period, which it's a lower number than we'd hoped to see. Uh, but yet it is encouraging that, that so many offices did listen and, and did recognize that the, the nature of work has, has changed. Is there any particular reason your association pushed for at least two days? Is there anything magic about that two-day number in the, in the workflow of an assistant U.S. attorney? We recognize as AUSAs that, that being trial lawyers is not an insular job. It's not something that you can just do entirely on your own. You need to be in an environment with other trial lawyers where you can kick around ideas, where you can talk about trial problems and evidence problems. So we have never taken the position that being an assistant U.S. attorney is something that you can do remotely from from your spare bedroom. We understand by the nature of this work that it requires in-person commitment, in-person work. So we just came to the number of two days a week because we felt that, you know, understanding the workflow of AUSAs, that there is some amount of your work that, you know, you'll be writing motions, you'll be doing legal research, and you can do those things very well, perhaps even better from home than you can from the office. But we, we certainly recognize that the in-person component is still really important. And so that's how we settled on our two-day-a-week request. And I'm curious, did you see any kind of correlations between the offices that are a bit more permissive with telework? I mean, in urban, rural, geographic, or really just the personal preferences and philosophies of the U.S. attorney? I think it's really more about the preferences and philosophy of the individual U.S. attorneys. And from our perspective, that's a problem because our members, AUSAs, are career civil servants. Largely folks who come into these jobs feel very fortunate to have them and want to stay in these positions for a long time. Whereas our, our boss, the U.S. attorney in each office, is a political appointee who, who comes and goes usually within four to eight years. So NASA, in a lot of things, has sought more uniformity across the country. We, we'd like to see AUSAs have access to these work-life benefits that folks elsewhere in the federal government uh, you know, have access to. 
And so we think that, that uniformity is important. There are many, many things that the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys enforces uniformity on in terms of the pay system, in terms of the IT system. So telework should just be another one of those things that every office has a baseline of two days a week telework available. I would have to assume, too, that the the degree to which telework makes sense in any particular office depends on the posture of the local federal court system, too, right? I, I don't know the degree to which they've opened back up to in-person hearings, but but in the cases where you're really doing trials and motion hearings via Zoom, if you're being forced to go into the office to do a Zoom call all day, that's got to be crazy-making. Sure, and it's important to understand that in the federal court system, I think in-person and even Zoom-based court hearings are a lot less common than they are in, in state court. Mm. Some AUSAs just aren't in court that often. Some, Depending on the nature of your practice, you may or may not even you know, need to, to get to court via you know, in-person or Zoom all that, all that frequently. But what all AUSAs understand is that when you have an in-person court hearing, it doesn't matter if it's your telework day or not, you've got to show up in court. Sure. And uh, so different people, you know, folks who have high volume, you know, drug and gun type practices are in court more and are probably not going to be able to take uh, advantage of two days a week telework. On the other hand, somebody who's an appellate AUSA who spends the vast majority of their time doing legal research and writing could probably telework four or five days a week without any real negative impact to their job. So it is it is a little different from person to person. And and that's why we think uh, a baseline of two days a week is great. If some people can do more than that, you know, that's that's fine with us as well. But we would really like to see a national floor uh, of two days a week for AUSAs. What what do we know about how productivity has changed during those telework days or even during the period where most people were teleworking most most or all of the time, even if that's self-reported, which it probably is? Sure. From a self-reporting standpoint, AUSAs reported in response to our surveys that they felt just as productive at home as they were in the office. And everybody felt that they could continue to do their jobs very well from, uh, from the telework posture. I think it will be difficult to look retrospectively at what happened during the pandemic and measure productivity, you know, try to tie productivity to telework in the pandemic era, because there were a lot of things from a law enforcement standpoint that weren't happening during the early stages of the pandemic. And so if there was any dip in indictments or in resolutions, that kind of thing, I think it would be really difficult quantitatively to separate the effects of the pandemic from the effects of telework. But at this point, we have good self-report data that shows that USAs are comfortable doing this work from home and feel that they're just as productive on telework as they were in person. And is it possible to say anything about retention differences between different offices that have different telework policies? Any, any data I, on that yet? I think it's too soon to tell, but it is something that we are very worried about and that we have our eye on closely because becoming an AUSA is something that has a bit of a learning curve to it. And it requires you to come on board, you know, become familiar with the system, with the, you know, the principles of federal prosecution, the way things are done in federal court. And so the department makes a big investment in people when they come on board to these jobs. And, and we as an association worry deeply that the private sector is going to lure AUSAs away from these jobs with the, the possibility of, of increased remote work. And that is really the last thing that we want to see happen. We, we'd like to see AUSAs come into the job, 
be well-trained and stay in the job for a substantial period of time. Not to say that everybody has to make it their career, but it makes very little sense for the government to pay, to train AUSAs to do this job, to have them just go over to the private sector a couple of years after they start because the private sector is offering better pay and, and better remote work options. So we're very worried about the retention element of this. And we think it has the possibility of uh, negatively impacting the mission of the department. You talked earlier about your early discussions with the deputy attorney general. Can, can you tell anything about the reasons behind Maine Justice's reluctance to do a department-wide policy on on this? And maybe say a little bit more about why you think there needs to be uniformity across the country. Understandably, the, the deputy attorney general has some reluctance to put forth a department-wide uh, minimum on telework because she is responsible for responsible for so many components that have such different operational needs. So we understand that officers in the Federal Bureau of Prisons simply can't do their jobs uh, remotely. We understand that people in the national security world can't do their jobs without access to a secure um, compartmentalized information uh, facility. So we understand that there are different needs across the department. And I think her reluctance at the department level um, to, to have uniformity makes some sense. I, I, I can't really quibble with that too much. But at the component level, at the U.S. attorney community level, there is quite a bit of uniformity in, in the nature of the work and the ability for people to do this from home. We're all in the same computer system. We all have access to the same resources, which I, I would say I think are fantastic and, and enabled us to pivot to, tele, to telework very quickly. So we know that it works within this community. We know that within at the component level, we could have that that two-day week minimum and it would have no negative impact on operations. And in fact, I think a positive impact on morale and our ability to successfully carry out the mission of the Department of Justice. That's Adam Hanna, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Illinois and the vice president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. We'll post a link to their survey results at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just 
really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, 
I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is. I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.